Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. I'm Shane Phillips. This episode, Pavo is my co-host, and we're joined by Professor Diego Heal to talk about the very big topic of government and markets, and how one specific approach was taken in Chile over much of the past 50 years, with some good outcomes and some bad. This is an examination of what's now known as the enabling markets policy, which effectively left more of the job of housing the urban poor to the private market and provided demand and supply side subsidies to spur construction. Though as we discussed, the later emphasis was much more on demand side subsidies, which has some real drawbacks. This was in contrast to a previous policy of direct government provision of housing for poor households. Chile's enabling market policy became something of an archetype, and the World Bank promoted its expansion all over Latin America. And to give credit where due, it really did create a lot of housing for Chilean residents who lacked formal housing before. But as Professor Hill discusses in his article, this approach also helped entrench residential segregation of poor residents into distant neighborhoods with limited access to jobs, school and health facilities, and other amenities. He proposes an alternative that he calls the planning housing markets policy, which strikes more of a balance between government intervention and market provision of housing. One thing I want to note here before we jump in, I refer to countries in this conversation as more developed versus less developed, which is intended as an objective observation about the relative size of their economies and per capita incomes, and as a consequence of that, what they can afford to provide to their residents. Every descriptor has its own connotations, but I do want to be clear that this is not an attempt to assign value based on a nation's level of economic development, nor to ignore the history or global forces that might help explain some of these differences between nations. But I will say that we certainly lack the expertise to give those topics their due on this podcast. If you have a preferred terminology that you think works better than the one we use here, feel free to share it with me over email or social media. The Housing Voice Podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante and Olivia Arena. You can send feedback or show ideas to shanephillips at ucla.edu, and you can give us a five-star rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now let's get to our conversation with Diego. Diego Gil is assistant professor at La Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile, and he's joining us today to talk about a 2019 article he wrote for the American Journal of Comparative Law. The article is titled Law and Inclusive Urban Development, Lessons from Chile's Enabling Markets Housing Policy Regime. Diego, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. And Shane, the, the regular host, is the housing manager at UCLA's Lewis Center. How's it going, Shane? I too am delighted to be here. <laughs> Before we get to the paper, we always have our guests give us a tour of where they live or where they have lived. And we are very excited for this one. You're based in Santiago, Chile. If we're visiting you there, what are the must-see spots, uh, especially for folks who have an interest in housing and urban planning? Okay, well, thank you very, very much again for the invitation. Um, yes, I live in Santiago, the capital of Chile. This is a big a metropolitan area where around 7 million people live. And from a housing and urban planning point of view, it's an interesting city because as many others, right, it shows big uh, disparities, right? There's 
the downtown area and the eastern corner of the city where you see a good balance of uh, residential, commercial areas, uh, where, and that's the area where most uh, higher income groups live. But then you see the rest of the city where uh, in, many, uh, in many zones, there's a big uh, high poverty concentration uh, and other problems such as urban urban segregation as we have uh, as we're going to be talking later in in, in the in this uh, conversa- conversation one interesting aspect i think is that to a large extent and sometimes i think um, we don't talk much about it in, in policy discussion is that um, that uh, to a large extent cities are basically shaped through the way governments implement housing policies right and what you can see in Santiago, which I think is very interesting from a housing policy perspective, is that we have neighborhoods that have been constructed through different policy instruments and programs. So, for instance, you can see very interesting housing projects that were constructed in the 60s and 70s for the working class. Some of them still exist in the city. And they are very interesting. One, for instance, what the one that is very famous is the is Villa Portales, which is um, which is always uh, shown uh, as one very good example of this more modernist architecture style. But then you, you see other other neighborhoods that has been contracted by other policies where we are not, of course, very proud about the outcomes that were produced there. Right. So, like. I think it's interesting in this city that you can see different historical moments where different policies have been implemented and that have led to very different outcomes in terms of not only the physical shape of the city, but also things related to uh, like the welfare of, of, of urban residents in, in, in Santiago. Mm-hmm. Talking about that history, I think, is, is a good place to start. So let's begin this conversation with the challenges that Chile was facing in the 70s and 80s in particular with respect to housing the urban poor. Before we even talk about the political and economic context of that era, which is really important, what was the context more specifically just with respect to housing? Things like access to formal housing, housing quality, things like that. Yeah, well, as, as in many other policy areas, what happens in, in the 70s and 80s uh, is very much linked to the political situation, right? And what happened in Chile is that we had a very unique, in some ways, military dictatorship that governed the country for 17 years, going from 1973 to 1990. Huh? And that um, military dictatorship was... Of course, a very repressive government. A lot of people was killed and tortured. But also, it was very um, transformative in the sense of these market-based neoliberal changes that they made to our economic and social policies. And that they intervene most of policies areas in the, in the, in the country, uh, including housing and urban planning. Huh? So that was a moment where that government, the military government, was basically reshaping our whole sort of uh, housing and urban planning um, institutional structure. Uh, and I think they were very effective, and I think I, I mentioned that in the paper, they were very effective in terms of setting up a new system, a new way of uh, providing housing aid to the lower income groups in, in the country. But they were not very effective from a point of view of providing 
the sufficient housing solutions to the people that were demanding housing. There was also um, something that occurred in a context where there was a lot of repression and there was a lot, also a lot of uh, some like uh, they, they actually they implemented a program where they were eradicating low-income groups that were living in informal settlements in in the higher income areas of the of uh, Chilean cities. Uh, that was very sort of um, clear. That happened very clearly in in, in Santiago, uh, and they were sort of expulsing them via yeah, to to the. Uh, to peripheral areas of, uh, of the city. There's, there's actually one very good movie, one of, I think one of the best Chilean movies called The Machuca, M-A-C-H-U-C-A, mm-hmm. uh, Machuca, um, that won a lot of prizes. And I think it's a good, very good example of, of how these communities of uh, informal settlement sellers were living in higher income areas in, in Chilean cities and they were eradicated by the military dictatorship to other areas of the, of the city. We kind of jumped ahead there. So I want to make sure we, we cover the military dictatorship implemented this enabling markets policy. It was dislocating, displacing urban poor, especially from higher income neighborhoods. But what were they, what was the context they were acting within? What, were, what problem were they trying to solve? Because I know there was a lot of informal housing, for example, like what did, what did things look like for the urban poor? What form did the city take at that time that the, the dictatorship was trying to do something about? Yeah, so there, there was actually a lot of uh, informal settlements in the in the country. We unfortunately don't have uh, good data that would trace historically uh, the number of families and the number of uh, informal settlements. Uh, we have better data on that, but from more recent years. So yeah, so they, they needed to provide sort of a more formal solution to uh, to what was going on with the informal settlements and with many other families that didn't have access to to formal housing, there was also a moment where there was still an ongoing process of migration from rural areas to urban areas, uh, and that was also uh, something that uh, the government needed to respond. So there was actually a huge demand for for formal housing. Actually, there's there's a famous uh, f- a phrase attributed to Augusto Pinochet, the, the Chilean dictator, that he he said. I think that the quote is better in Spanish than in English. He said that he would transform Chile from a country of proletarios, of proletarians, to propietarios, to homeowners. Mm. He wanted to transform the, the, the country in a country or in a in a in a country of homeowners, right? So he really wanted to move people from the informal to the formal sector. And also that also has another uh, um, uh, political dimension, of course. There, there was a lot of political activism in these low-income uh, communities associated with the opposition to the dictatorship. So the, the military dictatorship really needed to, to provide a response, not only because there was a huge demand for formal housing, but also for a political point of view, right, for, mm-hmm. for a political uh, necessity. Yeah. I think there's a, a parallel here in the U.S. back in the 30s, 40s, 50s with, you know, the government and elected officials trying to kind of push homeownership here for similar reasons, among others. But one reason being this idea that someone who owned their home, owned land, owned property would would somehow be less radical and more conservative just generally, which I think, you know, is, is true <laughs> in some regards, for better or worse. As you're... Article walks us through Chile 
took a market-oriented approach to addressing these problems, or what the World Bank would later call the enabling markets policy. This was very much in line with the philosophy of the Pinochet regime at the time, though Chile was by no means unique in taking that approach. What is the enabling markets policy, and how did it differ from policies of the past that involved more direct government intervention? Yes. Um, so when when I talk about the enabling markets policy, I basically I'm basically using the terminology of the World Bank. There's a very famous 1994 report from the World Bank uh, delineating the main aspects of this enabling markets uh, policy regime. And actually, one of the countries that they use as an example is Chile. Now, of course, there's a lot of diversity within this framework, and you can find different emphasis. In the case of Chile, it involved a significant transformation in the way government provided uh, affordable housing to the lower income groups, right? So before this transformation that occurred in the 70s and 80s, basically Chile had a sort of public housing model, if we would use, if we could use the terminology uh, that is used in, in, in the US and other countries, right? Basically, there were some gov- government corporations that acted as, a, as a real estate developers, basically. And they controlled the organization of the demand of, for affordable housing, the design of the typologies that were constructed, uh, and the allocation of those um, of the units that were constructed under heavily government-controlled agencies, basically. One important difference be- between this public housing model and the one in the U.S., for the one, the one that was implemented in the U.S., for instance, is that basically all housing units were delivered to people that were converted into homeowners. These were sort of homeownership subsidies that were granted by the government. You would acquire a housing unit with full property rights. Not it was it was not a rental housing. So in some way, this was a this was a model that was heavily controlled by the government in the sense that public corporations designed and constructed the housing units. But after they were delivered to low-income families, households that qualified for those uh, units, basically the the government stopped the engagement with these uh, housing solutions. And then one peculiarity of of the Chilean military dictatorship of the 70s and 80s was that it basically implemented a big transformation in most social and economic sectors. This happened, and it's actually different from what happened to other military dictatorships in in Latin America. This happened in Chile because basically a group of economists, which are called the Chicago Boys, because they were Chilean economists that were actually professors at my same university and that were trained at the University of Chicago's uh, Department of Economics, they basically convinced the uh, military junta to produce, to implement this big uh, neoliberal transformation in the country. And that, of course, affected most uh, social policy sectors, including housing. In the the housing area, basically, um, the government decided to transform completely the way government was involved in the production of affordable housing with the idea that private solutions were better than public solutions, right? So basically, it delegated to the private sector most of the responsibilities 
of the provision of uh, affordable housing for the lower income groups. And the um, philosophy behind it was to try to limit the government's role to provide targeted subsidies in order to generate a competitive system of uh, suppliers of affordable housing, right? So basically, the government limited its role to allocate targeted subsidies to uh, eligible households, and they also limited and, uh, and changed completely the um, land use uh, regulation regulatory system so that to, to create a framework that would be more favorable uh, for the private construction of uh, housing projects. Uh, so those are, I guess, some of the main characteristics of these enabling markets uh, regime. There's been a lot, of, a lot of change, of course, after this, the system was uh, set up. But basically, to our days, I would say, I think it's plausible to argue that the general architecture of this regime uh, has been maintained. Yeah, and I think internationally as well, it's still kind of the dominant framework um, for look, thinking about housing policy. And full disclosure, uh, UCLA, I think emeritus professor Al Harberger was at the University of Chicago uh, teaching some of the Chicago boys, I think. So UCLA is implicated in this, in this <laughs> as well. Um, I, I was thinking maybe just to give a recap for people that aren't familiar with this kind of ideological history of international housing policy, like to the extent that there is kind of there are trends uh, globally. I think, you know, you think about the 50s and 60s, this modernist effort to build public housing in multi large multifamily blocks um, in a lot of countries as at the same time, combined with a lot of urban renewal practices of destroying older neighborhoods, um, especially poor, you know, or, or minority neighborhoods. And then in the 70s, something that kind of didn't come up, I, I wanted to highlight was like the 70s, the work of John Turner and the kind of recognition that informal self-built urbanization processes were like a valid path to produce self-built as in like the actual residents themselves kind of exactly spurring the you know contracting for the development of their own housing right, yeah or even you know physically building it themselves right i mean i mm -hmm. think that's kind of the context in a lot of latin america in the 70s was massive movement to the cities uh from people from the countryside and no kind of formal housing providers building you know subdivisions for these people and they would just build housing for themselves. And so Turner's emphasis um, and others like Charles Abrams was that government should support this process. Right. And one of the things that the, you know, the neoliberal people latched onto was support this process by legalizing it. But, you know, a lot of those other advocates like Charles Abrams were saying support this process by subsidizing materials or helping people, you know, with architecture or kind of giving people more direct assistance. Um, and then kind of the other important academic work in the 80s was by Hernando de Soto from Peru. And he, he's the really one, I think, that his work, I think it was like 85 or something, El Otro Sendero, The Other Path, and talking about how government regulations in Lima prevented people from following the rules because there were just too many rules and it would take so long to get anything approved. And that really informed a lot of this kind of enabling markets approach to say like, well, we should allow housing to be built um, in a way that it's inexpensive and accessible to people. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's such a fun thing to talk about with students. I teach this this topic in, in my class. It's one of the themes because, you know, on the one hand, this enabling markets document did a lot to stop 
important subsidization and social housing programs kind of or to to help people stop doing that then maybe they wanted to stop doing that anyways but on the other hand it brought government action into the housing policy discussion in a way that it really hadn't been before so it emphasizes infrastructure provision for new subdivisions and it emphasizes kind of planning as a housing policy in a way that previously people i, I think hadn't thought about so i think that aspect of what you mentioned how santiago expanded it's urbanizable land in a way to accommodate population growth. I think that didn't happen in a lot of other cities in Latin America. And as a result, people were forced to, to do illegal, you know, self-build housing rather than being accommodated by the state to build, uh, you know, some kind of low quality housing, but in a, in a formal sense. Yeah. And I, I would like to come back to some of the motivations behind this shift and the tensions in, in that approach in a, in a few minutes. But I do want to, before we move on, just talk a little bit about the results of, of this approach in Chile. I know it's neither all good or all bad in terms of what happened, as, as is usually the case with these things. There were big successes and also plenty of failures and shortcomings at the same time. Could you just sketch that history out for us a bit? And as you do, I think it'd be helpful to introduce our listeners to two important terms that you define early in the article. Uh, adequate housing is the first, and urban inclusion is the second. So to restate that, what were the results of Chile's in enabling markets policy, and how do the concepts of adequate housing and urban inclusion influence how we look back on those results? Yeah, so I, I use these these two terms, which of course, as every policy goals, such as adequate housing or urban inclusion, they respond to uh, the frames that exist in the periods of history where they these terms are used, right? Uh, so uh, how we define today adequate housing, for instance, is probably different from how it was defined uh, several decades ago, right? Uh, usually adequate housing refers to providing housing that meets some minimal quality standards, basically. And I think in that sense, Chile's housing policy has, uh, has made a lot of progress, right? Um, remember that also Chile is a country with, um, that is shaken every once in a while by big earthquakes. So, Usually there's a strong focus on having good quality building standards because, of course, uh, uh, like houses and, and our infrastructure is affected by these earthquakes uh, from time to time, right? So, and, uh, so in, in that sense, I think that um, there's been a lot of progress in, in, the, in the past decades. The other term is urban inclusion. And I think urban inclusion could be defined in two ways or it's usually defined in two, two ways when we when we see the literature or when we talk to policy experts, right? One way that is often used in like in uh, policy circles is the fact that um, housing should be should be connected to the urban infrastructure and to good quality public and private services that are often offered by cities, right? So it basically refers to the connection of affordable housing to the opportunities that cities usually offer, right? Labor centers, education and health facilities, etc. A second uh, definition of urban inclusion is more related to social mixture. The fact that through housing, you could promote 
the connection and the and the relationships between groups that become belong to different uh, social classes, right? So of course that the the way you frame the term urban inclusion will will shape the type of programs and policies that you implement, right? Uh, it's different to promote housing that is well served by public services than promoting housing that is connected to that allow low-income groups to be close to other social groups. So going back to the, to the history of, 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 um, of uh, Chile's housing policy, and I think also this also connects to the comment that Pablo was, was making. So the dictatorship in the 80s was very effective in terms of setting up a new institution, a new policy architecture, but it was not very effective actually in reducing the housing deficit. So what we see, and, the, and you can see that clearly in the data, and I show part of that data in, in my paper, is that in the 90s uh, and in the 2000s, when democracy resumed in Chile, we had a, like the first democratic government after the dictatorship started in 1990, those governments were much more effective in terms of providing housing to the lower income groups. So the housing deficit in the country was reduced significantly throughout the 90s and 2000. Uh, in terms of uh, the quality of housing, at the beginning there were many troubles and uh, problems in terms of the building standards that the, that the, that the private sector was using when building uh, housing projects for, for the poor with uh, public subsidies. Uh, but in, in, with respect to, to the quality of housing, I think, Throughout the years, uh, those standards were improved. I think the the big failure has been urban inclusion, because especially in the '90s and also in the to some extent in the 2000s, and and you can also see some of those problems still in the way the, the policies implemented today. Uh, you see that the, the, this is still a policy that incentivizes the agglomeration of low-income households in cheap land, usually located in the least desirable play, areas of the city, right? So what basically I argue in the, in the paper is that in terms of the, from a quantitative perspective, the, um, the, housing, the housing policy uh, implemented in the past decades have been quite a success, but from a per, from the perspective of urban inclusion, um, I think it's uh, it's fair to say that there's been many shortcomings of this uh, institutional model. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, kind of trade-offs there between. I think I've heard other people talk about in terms of right to housing versus right to the city, right? So you can provide a lot of housing, but it's inaccessible to the benefits of of the city itself. I did want to clarify, you use the phrase housing deficit, which I think might not be familiar to many of our listeners. Does this basically mean a shortage of formal housing units relative to the number of people? So it's sort of like the number of people that are currently living in slums or shanties or kind of makeshift shelter uh, who need formal higher quality housing? Yes, there's actually a technicality there. Um, yeah, so housing deficit is basically the measure that the government uses to um, estimate the number of housing units that need to be constructed in order to replace housing that where that doesn't meet minimal uh, stand, uh, building standards criteria and also 
uh, housing units that are need to be produced in order to house people that are living with others or that are not that do not have access to formal housing. But it doesn't include informal settlements. Mm. So when we talk about the housing deficit in Chile, we usually need to combine the 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 number of people that are part of these official statistics with the number of people that are living in informal settlements. Yeah, and for the housing voice completist, you can refer to an episode uh, recorded with Nick Morantz and Echo Zhang where we talked about California's methodology for estimating housing. We don't call it a deficit here, but uh, the needs, housing needs, right? But in this quantitative population growth element and the qualitative like overcrowding and poor quality housing. But the, the informality thing is interesting. Maybe we'll get into it later. One question I had, which I realized the paper didn't really touch on, is where is the housing for low-income households being built? What does it look like? Uh, I gather that it's suburban in character, but is that the whole story? Is it kind of like what uh, we talked about with Dinora Gonzalez about Mexico's suburbanization, where it's just kind of whatever land happens to be available at the urban fringe and not only the you know schools and parks and so forth that are available, but even the, the roads and, and infrastructure are not really developed? Well, there's, there's, of course, always some heterogeneous results, right? Of Not every project is the same, right? Uh, but when we talk about urban segregation in Chile, we mostly refer to housing projects that are very dense, and that are usually constructed in the fringes of the of our cities. That's actually very dramatic in Santiago because Santiago is a very big metropolitan area, right? So some of these projects are very fra- far from the downtown area, let's say. In, in, in the case of Santiago, and I think the data shows this in a very eloquent way, m- most of these projects built in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s were actually constructed in the southern and western limit of the of the of Santiago. And this has produced a very interesting pattern because in, in a city like Santiago, we have very high density in the downtown area, as happens in most cities, right? But also in the areas that are close to the urban limit. Mm. There's been some changes uh, and from, from here and then, a municipality that works well with a community is able to construct an affordable housing project in a better located area. But the average outcome of this institutional model has been the agglomeration of low-income households in the city limits, usually in those limits that are, do not, that are not well-served, that are not um, that do not have good access to transportation system, uh, do not have good coverage of parks and green areas, etc. As, as you may you may uh, imagine, right? That's interesting. That's that's kind of like a lot of European cities have a similar density pattern because mm. it's harder to redevelop. You know, it's harder to build new mid-rise buildings in the in the yeah. edge of the city. You know, unless you're doing greenfield development. We with um with a colleague. From the School of Government, Pablo Celay, who's an economist, we wrote a paper that we published in Cities, where we compare a sample of low-income households that live in formal housing with a sample of uh, low-income households that live in these formal subsidized housing projects. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. This is a survey that was conducted in 2008, and it's interesting that 
from the perspective of many welfare outcomes, people living in formal settlements report better outcomes than people living in these formal subsidized housing projects. Mm -hmm. In terms of location, for instance, usually informal settlements today are better located than many formal housing projects. They People in, in informal settlements commute less to their work. They are more satisfied with the neighborhood where they live, etc., etc. So uh, I think it's interesting that uh, despite all the effort and all the money that the government has put in order to promote the construction of these low-income housing projects, in terms of like the welfare of the residents, I don't, I don't want to generalize to every situation, of course, but sometimes people living in formal settlements are better off than people living in these formal housing projects. Yeah. Let's dig in on the policy itself and what the reforms actually looked like to make this enabling markets policy happen. Like what, what is it in terms of how it treats land use restrictions and regulations, how it treats developers, what public funds are being spent and on whom and where, all those things. Like, what is the enabling markets policy in a, in a more technocratic sense? Yeah, I can provide a very concrete, actually, uh, picture of what the, what, how this policy um, operates, right? So, well, we have a, a Ministry of Housing and Urban Planning in Chile, right? Which is sort of the equivalent of HUD. This, this ministry was um, created in 1965, but it was totally reshaped during the military dictatorship. And from now, from, from then, from, from this transformation of the 70s, when I was uh, doing the fieldwork for my, for my doctoral dissertation, people would refer to the Ministry of Housing as a machine of subsidy delivery. And basically, the, the Ministry of Housing has two main departments, the Department of Housing Policy and the Department of Urban Development. The most important one, the one that spends probably 70-80% of the budget of the Ministry of Housing is the Department of Housing Policy. And basically, that department operates the housing subsidy programs. So basically, the Ministry of Housing, what, what it does is to administer a set of housing subsidy programs that are designed to stimulate a competitive supply of uh, formal housing. And it has sort of two types of subsidy programs. One for middle-income groups, uh, where middle-income families can apply and they get a voucher from the government that they need to complement with a credit from, with a mortgage from the private sector and with savings. And with that, they can go to the private market to get uh, housing, to acquire housing. Remember that these are only homeownership subsidies, subsidies that are designed for people to use to buy a new or a used housing unit. And the second line of programs are the subsidy programs for low-income groups, which today are the bulk of the, of the effort, the uh, budget spent by the Ministry of Housing, which are Today are, are basically subsidy programs where the government subsidizes 95% of the cost of housing. It has to be complemented by a minimal amount of uh, savings and where individual, individual families, low-income families or a group of low-income families can apply and get the subsidies in order to buy a new or a used housing unit. Most of the 
housing uh, subsidies that are delivered to low-income groups in Chile go through this collective application process where a group of low-income families apply together to the subsidies with the sponsor of a private a company or a non-profit company and they apply, they get the subsidies and with that money they build a formal housing condominium that they finance with this, uh, with the money uh, provided by the government. That's basically the bulk of what the Ministry of Housing does. It also has this uh, urban development unit but they have much less uh, budget and they are basically focused on trying to set up some regulations to for the uh, for urban development in general to provide some interpretations on how to how those regulations apply to the private sector etc but um, the in terms of like the how uh, housing policy operates it basically operates through these um, government subsidy programs I have to say though that a few years ago the government started a rental housing program which was really an innovation. And it was mostly based actually on, on the Section 8 uh, voucher program of the U.S. But that... that in, a very, program, in a very sexist manner, the chau suegra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> goodbye, goodbye, mother-in-law, yeah, yeah. like for young couples or something. That was such a strange, strange national policy. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that name, if I, can, if I can mention the story, is that basically most of the people that lack affordable housing in Chile lives with others, right? Live with their families. Um, this is very common in, in lower income groups, and it's even common in, in the Latin American culture for affluent groups. But they are also counted as part of the housing deficit. So the government decided to implement these new programs in order to allow young families to separate from their, uh, from their families and to get a new housing unit. But they use this very problematic uh, terminology, <laughs> chao suegra, chao mother-in-law, uh, that produce a lot of like, uh, conflicts and criticism in the, yeah. uh, in the policy circles. But, yeah. but more seriously, I mean, it's fascinating that the shift was towards demand-side subsidies as like the neoliberal model proposes. But in the case of Chile and a lot of Latin America, it's down payment assistance for home ownership rather than rental assistance from the beginning. And I think, like you mentioned, the ideological motivations for that, even though in the U.S., you know, we have a similar home ownership ethos. So I wonder if it was also just the kind of practicality or cost, uh, the technical aspects. Of, you know, it's easier to administer a one time payment to somebody than it is to kind of run a program where you're subsidizing rents in a complicated manner. For a lifetime, I don't know if you have any insight into the creation of that and the discussions at the time. Yeah, that's a very good question, um, and actually, it's part of what I, I, I'd like to to work a little bit more in the, in the future, right? For my research agenda, I think that uh, yeah, that there's some some of the causes behind this emphasis on of homeownership might be with the lack of state capacity, which is a very uh, common feature in Latin America. Probably Chile has a, a bit more state capacity than other Latin American mm-hmm. countries. Uh, you see why, our, for instance, our rates of informal settlements are much lower than in other Latin American countries, right, and cities. But, um, but still, I think, of course, uh, rental housing involves a much more sophisticated uh, structure in order to administer this uh, subsidy that you give and you need to be uh, renovated for, from time to time. Um, now, again, uh, going back to, to this idea of neoliberal or market-based ideas, 
uh, what's interesting from this rental housing program that was uh, adopted a couple of years ago uh, is that they basically focused on the demand side, right? So they mm -hmm. created the program and they started to implement this demand side voucher for rental housing. And one of the main uh, outcomes from what we see in the research is that uh, most people cannot find housing, rental housing, with the price of the subsidy. So the take-up rate of the rental vouchers is very low. It's around 40%. Hmm. Um, and in some cities, I think in Santiago, it's even lower, right? And, basically, and, and again, the problem is that the government didn't, didn't complement this uh, demand-side intervention with other policies that would stimulate more directly the supply of rental housing. That, that's one of the main the, the core. Now, there's also some resistance to the idea of, of, of rental housing. Uh, there's also a culture of homeownership that I would say it's very rooted in the Chilean and Latin American culture, and probably in other in other countries as well. Uh, so it's it's not easy to have the government focus only on rental housing in, in a country like Chile. I did want to note that the collective application process that you mentioned earlier for the low-income groups trying to you know, buy or, or build housing reminds me a lot of our conversation with Hayden Shelby about the um, slum upgrading process in Bangkok, actually, and how just a lot of responsibility was sort of offloaded onto these low-income households who were basically, you know, on the one hand, it's great that they have more autonomy. Uh, on the other hand, this is a complicated process to figure out like how to build a neighborhood together, even if you've got some some subsidies. And so uh, I don't think we have to get into that. We could refer people to more discussion there, but I do think it's interesting. I think it's fair to say that this was not only a story of a sort of pro-market bias in housing policy, but something of an anti-government bias as well. But in the article, you bring up what I thought was an important distinction in the, the source or the rationale of these biases in less developed versus more developed countries. In most cases, developing countries have fewer trusted institutions, they have more concerns about corruption and less state capacity. And in that sense, it's, it's understandable why some people might not want to rely on government to solve these big problems. Could you expand on that idea a little bit? Does it seem like a valid concern to you? Or do you think there are good enough examples of other developing nations figuring this out in, in maybe a more balanced way? I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, and it looks, it seems to me very valid. Um, I guess I should add that, like, you know, if you've got this corruption on sort of the institutional political side, there's no reason to think you wouldn't also have it <laughs> on the private side. So maybe it's not that strong an argument on that in that regard. But I imagine it was an argument that was that was put forth. Yes. On, on a more general level, I would say that I think it's intuitive to when you have um, a country with lower state capacity, uh, and I'm speaking in general, not in a, in a country in specific, right? But when you have a, a country with low state capacity, I think it's intuitive to rely on policy instruments that would, in a way, try to produce some outcomes, considering that those outcomes cannot rely on a strong bureaucracy, an efficient bureaucracy, a solid uh, public agency, right? But my impression is that less low state capacity it's it's always a problem for poly, for complex policy problems you need to build good state capacity 
And I think what we were talking about when we were what, what we were talking about the demand side subsidies, I'm not against demand side subsidies. Uh, they they could be like an, a, a good efficient instrument to allocate uh, subsidies to try to um, promote certain outcomes, etc. But what we see in housing markets is that if you don't complement demand-side strategies with supply-side strategies, you're not going to produce good, uh, good outcomes. In the case of uh, uh, homeownership subsidies, for instance, one, one of the problems that, we, that the evidence of the Thielen case shows is that basically the price of the subsidy it's always negotiated with private developers, right? You need to have a price of a subsidy that you would that you would guarantee that it would stimulate some private developers to construct affordable housing. But what happens from a more structural point of view is that when you're setting up that price, you're basically setting up the price for the land that is the least desirable of the city. Especially when you have like a fixed subsidy price. Uh, if you have a mechanism to uh, provide different prices for a city, you may have a different market response. But in the case of Chile, it has always been a very homogeneous uh, price uh, of uh, the subsidy programs, right? So what happens is that basically the price of the subsidy um, provides a signal for the amount of money that the government is, is able to provide in order to construct housing in some places. And all the rest goes basically is set up above the, the price of the of the subsidy. Right. So we that's why we have seen, and I think there's good research about it, uh, we have seen that it's very difficult with only a demand side intervention to promote affordable housing in well-located places. You almost never uh, are able to compete for well-located land with this type of subsidy, uh, demand-side subsidy strategies. That's why I, mean, I, I think that at the end, given that it's a very complex problem and it's very difficult to counteract the housing market dynamics, you need to have a more sophisticated state capacity and more sophisticated regulatory interventions in order to promote more directly the supply of affordable housing in well-located places. It, it really reminds me of another country with low state capacity, the United States of America, <laughs> and how our low-income housing tax credit program also builds affordable housing in neighborhoods uh, that on a many indicators are not considered kind of high resource or high opportunity neighborhoods. If uh, a recent graduate from our PhD program, Xavier Kwai, uh, we'll put his a link to his dissertation in the show notes, but he shows that, yeah, in fact, people moving into new low-income housing tax credit buildings are getting much better quality housing, but they're moving to, quote-unquote, worse kind of bystander metric neighborhoods. So we also have this, this same problem in our system. I also think it's important to note that the housing problems we're talking about differ in less developed versus more developed countries. In less developed countries, the problem tends to be too little formal housing, period. Very large shares of the population may just lack formal housing altogether. These places are tasked with creating a lot of housing really from scratch, which of course is a huge undertaking, and all the more so for not having a lot of resources or state capacity to carry that out. In more developed countries like the U.S., the vast majority of people are housed in the formal housing sector, 
And so while we certainly have our own problems, they can feel more manageable, I think, like something we can get our arms around. Does that ring true to you? I, I just feel like this is an important distinction because we're talking about Chile, but you know, many of our listeners are coming from the U.S. I want to make sure we have a sense for the different challenges that they're trying to tackle. Yes, well, um, Chile is, uh, is classified as a middle-income country, and I think the outcomes that we see in the housing uh, field probably reflect the fact that we are a middle-income country. Uh, the number of families that live in informal settlements in Chile is much lower than what happens in, in, in many developing countries, uh, such as Brazil, for instance, and, and, other, uh, and other countries uh, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in other continents as well. But yes, we do have a, a problem of in, in, informality, uh, which has been actually growing in the, in the, couple of, in the past couple of years. There's many hypotheses behind it. There's a lot been a strong, I mean, strong migration process to Chile in the in the past years. Uh, so a lot of people, a lot, we have seen the emergence of a lot of uh, informal settlements in the northern area of the region. Also, the pandemic I think hit hit very very hard uh, low income groups and maybe forced many of them to live in these informal communities. So yeah, so it, it's true that that's that's actually a, a, a big problem. Um, not sure whether it's more complicated or easier to navigate that sort of policy dilemma versus others that are shown in, in countries like in the U.S. I live in the U.S. for many years. I studied their housing problems. I think there are many complicated. <laughs> Doesn't feel any easier to solve here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I was, I was, Certainly but, doesn't to me, but I, when I don't have when another context. When you were context. reading that, Shane, I was... I was <laughs> thinking that it doesn't ring 100% true to me. I mean, I think part of it is like the question of the minimum quality of housing that's acceptable to people and the idea of defining like an informal settlement as like an unacceptable place to live. I think that, you know, I would much rather have Los Angeles tolerate, you know, very low quality housing such that people don't have to sleep under the freeway, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that's a, an issue in Latin America as well where, you know, this this push to say no that's that's shanty town is not acceptable and you know what do we do about that rather than supporting kind of people's housing where it is and improving it um, yeah i mean i think the resource differences are, are often very large but then it's just political will and like how you know we have a lot of money in the u.s we just don't spend it on uh, lower income people and i do think that that you know where you draw the line on what is acceptable housing might differ based on, you know, your country's your income, level of economic development. I think yeah. you've, you've seen the same things in the U.S. as in other places where there's this impulse to say that is unacceptable housing and we are going to ban it or make it, you know, untenable in some way. But then we're not necessarily going to provide the resources to make the kind of minimum alternative viable for you or affordable for you. Let me, let me say something about informal settlements in Chile, which I think it's, uh, illustrates some of the points that we were, we were talking. Well, so I think Chile is a country that would, could address the problem of informal settlements, for sure. I think it has the resources, or it could make the arrangements to have the resources to tackle this problem. As probably it's the same with the U.S., with all the people that live in homeless, home, homelessness, and, and all the people that cannot are evicted or do not have access, easy access to housing, right? Uh, or at least they cannot live in the place where they would like to live. So the, I think these are countries that 
certainly they could have the, the possibility of addressing that problem. But I think that what's happening, my impression in Chile, uh, with the emergence and with the increase of, of the number of families living in informal settlements in the past year is that informality is reflecting a deeper and structural problem. And to a large extent, I think, an informal settlement is not only a problem of lack of access to affordable housing. The, the problem, in my view, is a little bit, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's, it represents the fact that the government cannot really address the real needs of families that need access to formal housing. So what happens, and I think the, the research the research that I um, that I referred earlier speaks to it, is that sometimes living in an informal settlement with all the problems that are associated with living in informal settlement, because it's it, it, it's a really dramatic situation. You don't have you don't have access to uh, a sewage system, you don't have access to clean water, etc. So it, it, of course, has a lot of problems living in informal settlement. But even with all those problems, sometimes people prefer uh, or are forced to live in these communities rather than using the subsidies or getting access to the formal options that the government is providing, right? So there, I think there are some deep structural issues that where the informal settlements are mostly the, the symptom, right? Uh, same with exclusion, right? We've been having a huge trend of migration and, and an important portion, not the majority, but an important portion of people living in formal settlements in Chile are migrants, are low-income migrants that, are, that want to have opportunities in this country, opportunities that they lack in their home countries, uh, but there's no way, an easy way to transition to this new country, to get the paperwork, to have a visa, uh, to get some level of some sort of formal housing. So I think that there's the, the infor, informal settlements is reflecting a more complex problem. It's not what happened probably in the 60s or in the 50s, where basically the, the state didn't have the resources to set up a continuous policy instrument to provide housing for the poor. Now I think it's a, it, this is representing a more structural problem. The fact that the, the, the government needs to provide more sophisticated housing solutions and, and they're not doing it. We're not doing that. And, and I think that's part of what we're seeing uh, with, with, this, with this issue. Yeah, one thing that actually came to mind as you were talking about this was Thinking about the the unhoused population here in Los Angeles and, and many other places, how sometimes they can be criticized for for not going into shelters that are provided without there really being any acknowledgement of all the restrictions that are placed on people who you know sleep in shelters and just the the environment that that they're being subjected to. It kind of reminds me. I think there's an analogy there to people who you know prefer to just live in. In, in informal settlements rather than sort of take this inadequate deal in some cases that the government is offering. I want to make sure before we go that we do talk about alternatives. You know, the, the paper is kind of critiquing this enabling markets policy, but you've proposed an alternative, which you call the planning markets housing policy. What does that look like? What I try to do in the, in the paper is not to provide like a fully detailed policy proposal to solve all these housing problems that we have been talking about. It's mostly to provide a framework about different policy rationales 
that could be adopted and implemented in order to provide a more uh, strong response in the housing field. In the paper, I um, differentiate three sort of uh, policy rationales. One is when the government acts as a developer, right? And we saw that strongly in many um, developed countries, but also in countries like Chile, uh, where government agencies were basically in charge of constructing and uh, organizing the production of uh, low-income housing. Uh, a second rationale is, is when the government basically limits its role to the finance, to implementing finance mechanisms to promote the supply of affordable housing. And I, I see that, I think that Chile transition, I think the U.S. is a comparable example, transition from a model where the government controlled the production of affordable housing to a model where the government limits its role to the finance of affordable housing. Um, a third rationale is related to what I labeled in the paper a planning housing markets approach, where basically um, the government uses land use regulations, uh, obligations and incentives to promote the uh, generation of uh, low-income housing in well-located areas of, of cities. I know I, I have read the experience of uh, inclusionary zoning and other mechanisms. You had a you had a really interesting uh, talk in the previous episode of the of the podcast. I think about inclusionary zoning, and yeah, of course, there's no magic bullet here. Uh, but I think that in in, in capitalist societies uh, and societies like Chile, governments need to build up a better regulatory system in order to be more strategic in terms of planning the growth of our cities and in that planning, uh, inserting mechanisms to uh, incentivize and promote uh, the gener generation uh, of affordable housing in a more fair way throughout throughout the urban areas. And last question here for me, sort of big picture and, and building on what you're talking about with the uh, planning housing markets policy. For myself, I, I believe pretty strongly that there's a role, an important role for the market, and there's an important role for government and government in many ways shapes markets and this, you know, this dichotomy of it's either you have a market approach or you have a government approach just rings untrue to me. So like, how do we move forward? How do we get the most we can out of the market while making sure that the government is doing, uh, you know, as much as it can, but maybe no more? This is a very simple that's question. A very, that's a very <laughs> simple question, Shane. Yeah. You have three minutes to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> difficult to answer, right? Uh, I, I mean, it's difficult, it, but I feel like it's the, it is the question. Uh, for me, it's the question at the heart of your paper. And in many ways, at the heart of the entire housing policy debate we're having across the US and across the world. Yeah, I, I, believe, um, I believe that uh, governments need to be pragmatic, right? Uh, actually, we need to acknowledge, and I think the US and Europe provides good evidence about this, that sometimes when governments control their policy solutions, they produce really bad outcomes, right? Uh, housing segregation in the US, for instance, was the result of bad policies that that relied strongly on public uh, agencies. Huh? And that was actually one of the reasons why the U.S. moved to more market-based mechanisms. It was not only an ideological trend, which was part of it, 
but it was also an acknowledgement of the failure of the public housing model. The same with Chile, when, when uh, public corporations operated mostly as, um, as uh, developers, basically, the government was able to produce really nice housing projects, some that today are very iconic, uh, but they didn't have the uh, ability to massify housing solutions and the number of families that needed housing was very, very high. So through this enabling markets uh, policy strategy, the government was able to massify access to formal housing. So I think we need to be pragmatic and, uh, and I think there's no magic solutions. The same, for instance, with we could uh, make the power with land use regulations. And, uh, we see, I think, California is a, one of the paradigmatic examples of land use regulations that are too strict and you cannot build anywhere, right? But when we uh, deregulate the land use uh, market, we could also see very bad outcomes. So I think the governments need to be strategic, need to be uh, pragmatic, and they need to stick they, they need to search for, for a good balance. And I think that building up a robust regulatory uh, framework that could really generate a more important balance between public and private interests that would allow uh, government agencies, municipalities to negotiate with private developers in order to incentivize the production of affordable housing in well-located uh, land. Yeah, there's no magic bullet again, but uh, but I think that uh, we need a lot of pragmatism, and especially we need to diversify our the, the instruments that we have used. We need to experiment with new alternatives, uh, and we also need to diversify. One of the problems I think of the, that that the Chilean case showed is that it has focused too much on one single instrument, these targeted demand side subsidies, and they have not been enough. They are not like philosophically wrong, right? But they need to be complemented with other strategies. And that's what that's sort of the the main claim I make in the paper. Yeah, I think I think that's an important point. I mean my my suggestion would rather I mean kind of building off last week's episode or two weeks ago's episode. I mean I think spending a lot more money is is gotta be part of this conversation in in addition to, you know, changing the way cities do land use planning. Kind of some of what you're writing about in this paper and talking about reminds me is kind of related to this work that I'm doing now on affirmatively furthering fair housing and thinking about how, you know, what should the city's responsibilities be in terms of both planning for subsidized housing production in, in rich neighborhoods, but also, you know, changing the urban environment such that there aren't such great disparities in the quality of life in different neighborhoods, right? I mean, that's, you know, in a city where like Tokyo or something where no matter where you live, there's going to be transit access, there's going to be, you know, amenities, there's going to be parks. Then the problem of having kind of this region is generally poorer and this region is generally richer is like less of a big deal, right? So I think that mm. that mm. comes into play as well. Well, I think we will call it there. Diego Hill, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much to you and to Paolo. This was a very interesting conversation. You can read more about Diego's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Pavo is there at El Pavo. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.